Welcome back to Settlement Nation, the number one trial lawyer podcast. We are doing our best to hold off the monsoon of Johnny Depp and Amber Heard theme shows. Settlement Nation is brought to you by Independent Life, the country's only planet-focused structured settlement provider and exclusive home of iStructure, the first and only index-linked structured settlement annuity. Make sure you go check that out. I am Chris Bua, joined as always by my co-host, Courtney Barber. And if you listen to our podcast, chances are you are involved in settlements on a regular basis. Today's guest may open your eyes to a whole new process for settling your cases through the use of a qualified settlement fund, or more commonly known as a QSF. If you have never heard of QSFs before, take notes or make plans to re-listen to this uh, episode because honestly, it's really important stuff for you and your clients. And if you have heard of QSFs before, you are bound to learn something new and impactful. Our guest is none other than Rob Wood of Wood LLP out of California. Rob is the preeminent tax lawyer on any tax issues related to litigation with decades of experience providing tax advice on the most complex cases to attorneys, settling parties, and to companies in the settlement space like Independent Life. Rob recently published an article titled Qualified Settlement Fund Tax Myths that we are excited to uh, go over with him today. Rob, it's an honor to have you on Settlement Nation, and thank you for making time for us. Thank you, uh, Chris and Courtney. Nice nice to be here. Awesome. So let's start kind of at the, the basics. For an attorney listening that may not know what a qualified settlement fund is, can you just give us a quick overview to set the table? Sure. I, I'll, I'll say that uh, when you said we, you were trying to stay away from uh, Johnny Depp and Amber Heard, I'm disappointed <laughs> as... I actually wrote an article, I don't know, a month or so ago about tax issues. And I must say, I get a lot more interesting emails now as a result of writing about Johnny Depp. <laughs> um, but so so QSFs or Qualified Settlement Funds, um, uh, I, I hope you said the, you said that some people in the audience might, you know, might not know what they are. I would hope that by now pretty much everybody Every lawyer, uh, certainly plaintiffs' lawyers, would um, know at least a little bit about qualified settlement funds, uh, and you don't actually have to to know all that much. But um, but the they they've been around for a long time since 1993, and sort of a prior version, the designated settlement fund, even before that. It's in recent years, of course, they've become popular. I actually wrote a book that not here to sell books, but a sort of a big book on qualified settlement funds in 2009. Um, and But I think most of the things that you need to know, you can probably get from this myths article that you just referred to. It's, it's pretty simple. And Rob, speaking about that, that's the perfect parlay. I want to go straight into some of the topics you cover in that article. And first up is that QSFs are difficult to establish and administer. Yeah, and uh, my approach in this article was to um, was to enumerate thing objections that I've heard over the years. I have to say, I don't hear many objections. I don't imagine that the audience does either. Um, sometimes defendants push back and don't understand what a QSF is or, or something. But um, Courtney, on the sort of they're difficult to set up. I mean, the answer to that is is just no. They're you know they're they're quite simple simple requirements. It doesn't take a lot of lead time. There are only three requirements to set up a QSF. 
uh, first, the QSF, the, the entity has to be, and, and, and I should back up, I guess, more table setting for, for again, for, for people, um, if there are people in the audience, lawyers who haven't used or been involved in a QSF, it's really an intermediary entity. And it was specifically authorized by, the, the, by Congress and the IRS in the tax code and the regulations, section 468B of the tax code. Um, and, and the guts of the rules are really in the regulations, uh, but to allow people to put money into something as litigation or disputes were concluding and to give them time before the lawyers and the clients actually get the money. So you can think of it as an intermediary sort of station, a way station in between defendant and plaintiff. And critically, I'm a tax lawyer, so of course I think about the tax rules. The, the key tax benefit is the defendant can pay the money and it isn't received yet by the lawyer or the clients. So even if the clients don't care, and I would submit to you often they do, I would think that most lawyers would really like this because it enables them to structure fees and think about when they want to receive payments. So that's sort of the, the you know, the basic model. Um, so, I mean, the, the, the three requirements, it has to be uh, subject to court uh, or government supervision. Um, it's typically a court, but these days not, you know, not always. Um, it could be a governmental entity. Many QSFs now are set up that way. Um, and, and second, the, the entity, the trust, typically a trust, must exist to resolve or satisfy legal claims. That's usually, you know, kind of a no no brainer. Uh, and third, the trust must qualify as a, a trust under under state law. It, there are some QSFs that can even get around that third requirement, but I, I think I think essentially the government approval and legal claims are really the only things that you you need to worry about. It's it it ought to be, in my view, anyway a trust under state law and you should expressly set it up that way. So, so that's sort of what the, you know, the, the model is that people should be following. So one of the myths or misconceptions that you touch on are that QSFs are bad for defendants. Do you want to maybe elaborate on that myth? Yeah. And I think some of this is just posturing or maybe a great deal of it is um, the, you, you hear um, you will hear if you haven't already if you're a plaintiff's lawyer, um, that you know there's something untoward about a QSF. Uh, we you know we can't do that. You might be told uh, AIG. I don't know if I'm allowed to name names here, but AIG I think is the insurance company that is probably most famous or most well known for taking those kinds of um, you know those kinds of positions. Um, th there's it doesn't hurt the, the defendant. It's tax neutral, um, and in fact, you know curiously. I guess, curiously, in view of that objection, oh, gee, I'm a defendant. I don't want to do it. It hurts me. QSFs were actually put into the law to help defendants, not because of concern about plaintiffs or plaintiff's lawyers. It was expressly because, um, you know, big companies and their lawyer, tax lawyers and accountants were complaining to the IRS and to Congress that they sometimes would pay an amount into, um, you know, into a, an escrow of some sort, and that the tax rules at the time, and, and this is still true today, 
that's uh, called economic performance rules. The tax rules at the time basically said, you, Mr. Defendant, don't get to deduct this payment until it goes out to the people who are supposed to get it, the plaintiffs. And in big sort of messy class actions with thousands of people, that could be years. So the, the idea of a QSF was to accelerate defendant deductions. And, you know, sort of an ancillary benefit was, yeah, it's this good intermediary entity. It's good for plaintiffs and plaintiffs lawyers. But if you look at the legislative history, it's all about defendants, not about the plaintiff side. So I think the answer to the, you know, defendants say it's bad for them. The answer is it just demonstrably is not. I'm loving this, Rob, so far. You're putting many of these myths uh, to bed. Another one that you speak about in your article is that QSFs need many plaintiffs. Why is this not true? Yeah, I mean, this is an, this is something that um, I, I don't know if myth is the right word. Um, it, it's been a you know, kind of bone of contention uh, for a lot of years. Um, and I guess AIG is, an, is another one, or I, I can name them twice. I know I've heard that objection from them, <laughs> their, their lawyers. Uh, hopefully I will not get uh, as much uh, hate mail as I did for writing about Johnny Depp or, or Amber Heard um, <laughs> about from AIG. I think the, um, the, the 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 statute and the regulations don't say that you need multiple claimants. Um, I wrote an article actually with uh, one of my partners, Alex Brown, a, a year or two ago, maybe two years ago, um, that you could get for for I could send it to you, uh, Chris, and, and oh, Courtney, you, yeah, you could uh, you know you could distribute it. But basically, um, was in tax notes, and it's on my website. Um, that you could download. Essentially, you know, going through the arguments, the legal arguments. There are some fairly technical ones, um, but I and, and I think some of it. But my answer, and I've opined on this um, once in a while. My answer is that you don't have to have multiple claimants. Uh, that it is, uh, you know, sort of an incorrect theory or an incorrect fear. Uh, and and there's also the sort of sidestepping of that whole dispute, which is very frequently one can look at a fact pattern and there may in fact be multiple claimants, even though it looks like there's really only one plaintiff. Sometimes it's family members, for example, loss of consortium type claims. But I think the short answer is it, it's just not required. Um, the, uh, the IRS does not seem to be at all worried about it. So, so, I mean, in the old days, maybe 10 years ago, 15 years ago, I, w I was saying much more cautionary things about single claimant, you know, don't do it, uh, don't do it unless you can, you know, unless you're willing to take risks. And I say a lot more uh, calm things now just because I, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's an issue. Yeah. Um, and another myth that you uh, address is that QSFs have a limited time that they can be open. Do you want to elaborate on that one? Yeah, I mean, I think this one um, is has some has some teeth, or at least it has some validity to talk about it. Um, it is, I mean, there there it's it's quite true that there is, whether it's good or bad, there is no sort of express time limit. So that might cause some people to think, "Gee, uh, think about lawyers, for example." I've heard lawyers, plaintiffs' lawyers, say this. Oh, gee, I can keep the QSF, you know, open, and it's sort of once all the 
money's been dispersed except for my legal fees. I'll just I'll just keep it there and kind of use that entity as a housing for legal fees and can distribute money to me, you know, when I need it. If I want to buy a new car, for example. So, I mean, in, in my there's no express rule that says you cannot do that, but I think most tax lawyers, certainly I, would tell them don't do it. That in general, and this is this is not only my rule, but I've, I've heard this rule elsewhere. I think it's just kind of a if you piece the authority together, it seems logical to say you can keep the QSF together in you know in place and operating as long as you need to in order to resolve all the claims and 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 the claims meaning you know warring plaintiffs who are arguing warring uh, plaintiffs lawyers i've seen a lot of that people sort of disputing sometimes over big issues sometimes over small exactly who's getting what fees and costs sometimes it's litigation funders sometimes it's liens um so so there there are often a lot of arms and legs that may keep a qsf um, kind of vital for a while. I've personally been involved in some that last six or seven years, really large ones with you know lots of problems. Um, but if everything is resolved and it's really only one person's money, I, I certainly wouldn't keep it longer than a year. Uh, you know, I would try to do less. But in general, um, a year, which almost by definition spans two tax years. Uh, should be fine, but I think keeping it around forever is a is a bad idea and an abuse that I think eventually the IRS would you know would catch on to. Rob, you know you've obviously already spoken about so many benefits of QSFs just in this couple minutes of the podcast so far, and we believe there's so much enormous value from plaintiff attorneys being able to use them when they're settling a case. But one of the things that you write about, which we hear all the time as well, is that, you know, a myth is QSFs have no benefits. Can you talk about this? Yeah, I mean, it, and it, it is sort of frustrating. I, I don't know how many times uh, over the years it happens less today, but it still happens to me. And it used to happen to me quite a lot in past years where I get a call from a plaintiff's lawyer. Uh, you know, generally it's the plaintiff's lawyer saying, uh, you know, I just I just settled this case and, you know, it's it's X dollars and my fee is going to be Y dollars, um, you know, and I, I want to do some tax planning. And it, people mean and I get a lot of calls from plaintiffs too. people mean different things when they say settled in my experience. So some people mean, you know, everything's inked and it's all completely signed and done. Sometimes they even mean the money's paid. And sometimes they mean, you know, they had a phone call with the other side or an email saying, you know, yeah, let's settle on blank is a dollar amount, work out the details. Or they may mean, you know, a, a mediation term sheet. So first thing I want to do is find out, you know, what they mean and what has happened. For the, the, the tax benefits of a QSF are enormous flexibility. And I, I think flexibility by itself, uh, at least I think, is a big value, even if you decide you don't need it. So example, um, if the money is already sitting in the lawyer's trust account, it is there's some exceptions that are lousy that, I mean, 
don't sort of don't do this at home that we could talk about if necessary is kind of a Hail Mary pass. But in general, it's too late to do anything if the money's in the lawyer's trust account. So what I would say is, does the lawyer you know, want to, instead of getting the money in the trust account, have the money go to the QSF to buy time for the lawyer to think about fee structures and from a fiduciary duty perspective for the client's benefit? So for, for crying out loud, how many clients, thousands of clients that I've talked to over the years that, you know, rightly or wrongly feel like they've had a gun put to their head about, you know, signing the settlement agreement. And, and they may not have had an adequate time to think about how they want the money, whether they're interested or in structures uh, or, you know, whether that it, it's and, and if they are, what kind of structure they want. So it seems to me, even if a QSF, you know, which is inexpensive, is, is put in place, the money is in the QSF, everybody takes a breath, everybody thinks about it, you know, gets advice from whoever they want advice from without the defendant sort of, you know, breathing down their neck. Or I guess to, in case of the plaintiff's lawyers, you know, some, I don't mean to suggest that they're, uh, you know, pushing inappropriately, but it, it can be stressful for a plaintiff and it would be good for the plaintiff to have time, you know, without being told, you know, you, the, the trial is going on right now. I've seen a lot of those where, you know, we've got to do this tonight. It's going to go away. You know, the jury's coming back in tomorrow, whatever it is, it's just good to have time. And I think that's the key benefit. Uh, couldn't agree more. Uh, I think we've reached our last question uh, for an attorney that's listening to this and they want to start using qualified settlement funds, but they encounter an objection from the defense, what advice or strategy uh, would you have for them to overcome those objections? Yeah. Um, so, and I'm, I'm sorry, I keep doing this, but just to circle back to my last question about benefits, um, I, I guess implicit in my answer about, you know, timing and flexibility uh, is the notion that, uh, which I should make explicit, that for both plaintiffs and lawyers, um, the, who often, lawyers often use the phrase to me, oh, gee, constructive receipt, and, you know, isn't that an, an, an issue? And a QSF properly set up really obviates that. So the, the goal is, obviously, you need that if, if you're going to get the time and the flexibility that I've just stressed. So uh, what a QSF does is essentially turn off those sort of tax doctrines economic benefit and constructive receipt. And that's what buys you, buys you the time. So, so Chris, turning to your question. So what, you know, what do you do if you're a plaintiff's lawyer and you, you say uh, to the defendant, you know, either uh, or defense lawyer, either orally or in, in writing, uh, you know, we're going to, we're going to, we're going to send the money to a QSF. Uh, and, and this may come up because you tell them that, or you ask them, or it may come up because you put that into the settlement agreement draft that's bouncing back and forth, you know, and they scream bloody murder. I, I, I think my first answer would be, you know, you know, don't don't react instantly and, and get some advice, um, you know, for me or some someone like me. Get some advice from your your tax person um, because it is worth fighting for. I think if you believe that flexibility is 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 worth something. And, and I guess, I mean, every fact pattern is different. So 
the the benefits that I'm stressing, lawyers thinking about, you know, how they want money, when they want money, whether they're interested in structured fees, uh, and the, the kind of the same thing, uh, the same menu uh, for clients. Uh, that is, um, you know, do they want all cash? Do they want, you know, do they want to think about how the payment is is going to be is going to be distributed to them? For example, in a structure and what kind of structure? And, and sometimes, you know, with multiple plaintiffs anyway, with families, there are issues about who should get what. Um, I mean, I see this come up fairly frequently with families and, and even with unrelated plaintiffs. Um, sometimes there are questions about how the money should be should be divvied up and a QSF is ideal for that. But I think, so if they object, uh, Chris, uh, if the defense objects as you're, as you're noting, I think you you know you don't give up, um, and you you know you try to get try to get the defense lawyer, the litigator, I think out of the out of the equation, and try to say uh, why don't why don't why doesn't your tax person talk to my tax person and see if we can resolve it? And I mean, I found that that's that that's um, it's not you know universally effective. Uh, but it's it's a lot more likely to resolve it than uh, than if it's just the litigators talking about things that they you know they may not uh, do every day. Well, thank you for sharing that, Robin. We do, any articles you have, definitely send them our way. We will distribute everything to our list. And speaking of our list, we have thousands of plaintiff trial attorneys that listen every single week to our podcast. If you're going to leave them with one last thought, a closing. Um, you know, anecdote about QSFs, their importance, the benefits, what would it be? Uh, fair enough. I, I promise I won't send you Johnny Depp articles, by the way. <laughs> um, Maybe that one too. That one sounds like a good one. I'm actually interested in hearing it. So. Oh, geez. Um, I, I, will, I will say I get, now I get, I'm on various PR lists, you know, public relations lists, and those are always interesting. Um, uh, I, I guess the, the, I guess the kind of big message would be um, would be plan ahead uh, and get and get some advice uh, from you know from someone who is is reliable at, at certain uh, I think I'm reliable it doesn't have to be me but get plan ahead and get some advice some tax advice from someone who kind of doesn't have a dog in the fight you know, someone who's not, not doing it on a contingent fee basis or, or something like that. Um, just get some advice, uh, before, you know, you're at a critical decision point. I, I know that's easier said than done. Um, you know, and I guess building in time is one of the key benefits I just stressed for a QSF. And I would, as a tax lawyer, I, I sure like it when, when I get, um, you know, tipped off um, by a lawyer that something's going to happen next week, as opposed to you know it's it's now eleven fifty nine and something's going to happen at midnight. So those those are tough to respond to. I mean, we all have them and we all uh, do them, and I you know I don't mind being put in that position. But there is always more flexibility with a little more time. That's one of the great benefits of QSFs, and I think as a corollary you as a lawyer can get better results for yourself, uh, your fees, and for your clients 
if you build in a little latitude on time so that it's you know not a not a fire drill at the last minute. Well, Chris and I say this to all of our uh, trial attorneys that we work with, Rob. So we're hoping because it comes from you that they will actually listen about the timing aspect. Um, speaking of advice for all of our listeners out there, how can they contact you when they have a case, not at 11.59 p.m., but um, earlier earlier in the day that they can contact you about tax advice, they want to speak with you about QSFs, anything like that? How can they get in touch? Sure. I mean, the best way for, for me, I, I'm constantly having younger and more savvy uh, clients uh, introduce me or try to introduce me to new apps and things like this. Uh, but I'm kind of a stick in the mud. So email and phone calls are are, are best. Email is, is even better than phone calls in a way, just because I get usually more information that way. But email is um, is wood at woodllp.com, and I answer a really large you know number of them. Uh, and, and and phone is um, my direct line is four one five eight three four zero one one three, and I'm happy to answer quick uh, phone calls. I'm happy to um, answer emails, and if I think it merits hiring me, I'll I'll say so. Um, and I would also say this, I, 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 I guess one benefit that's enormous that I didn't really, I don't even know if I covered this in my article, that it just occurs to me um, is of enormous benefit, not, not so much to the lawyers, but to the clients. Um, and that is, you know, sort of what the tax treatment of their money is going to be. That's not about timing, but it's about sort of the character of their payment. Is it excludable from income under section 104. That's the physical injury section that every plaintiff's lawyer knows. Um, you know, or is it something else and how is it going to be handled on reporting? And and that's another sort of flexibility thing that in, I advise many, you know, many plaintiffs and occasionally defendants on the tax treatment of, of, of payments and, and sort of what is it and how can it be, be positioned and a QSF invariably doesn't hurt those things and usually improves them. Well, Rob, we so appreciate you coming on the show today. This is going to be such a landmark episode because we get questions thrown us thrown at us all the time. And it's great to have the master of this area actually on the show, sharing all your wisdom and knowledge with all of our listeners. So thank you so much from Chris and myself for coming on today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Nice talking with both of you.